9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of DSR. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined today by two of our good friends, uh, David Frum, who is uh, a contributor, a writer to the, uh, uh, for The Atlantic, uh, uh, Max Boot, who uh, is a columnist for uh, The Washington Post. Uh, both of them are accomplished authors, and uh, you have seen them both undoubtedly many times on multiple media. Uh, hi, David. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. How are you doing, Max? And he has disappeared. Uh, well, we'll we'll keep going, and when Max reappears, we will uh, we will have him rejoin us. Um, I was going to open with the same question for both of you, David. So I'm going to start with you. Uh, and by the way, the way this goes is we have a number of our members and other special guests who can pose questions. All they have to do is uh, go down to the Q and A section in the in the Zoom meeting, uh, pose a question down there. I'll see them and uh, I'll handle them as they come up or as they fit into the conversation. But we encourage you. That's the point. You're the reason you're here is to pose questions. So go ahead. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, th I think we have to begin with. Uh, your views on the, the 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 impeachment process as it is ongoing, and I should say to people who are listening, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, and uh, managers are currently laying out their case um, for you know why they believe the president uh, incited what happened on January sixth. Yeah. Well, David, thank you, thank you, and thank you for the hospitality of your air. So, so two observations, and Max is, is back, so I'll, I'll be brief to give Max uh, ample time. Uh, first, just a comment on the first day. Um, my, my late father spent much of his career as a real estate developer, focusing especially on, on quite small centers. And um, he took from that, one of the lessons he took from that experience was beware whenever anyone introduces himself or herself as a simple country lawyer, clutch to your wallet <laughs> with both hands. And what was so... So what was so entertaining about day one was we met a simple country lawyer who really was a simple country lawyer. Um, President Trump's first first lawyer really did seem to be unsure why he was there, no plan, uh, no uh, what he what unsure what he was doing. So much so that uh, President Trump's second lawyer, David Schoen, um, bitterly complained that the House managers had used such unfair tactics as editing and preparation in making their case. <laughs> I, I think actually watching today, they, they may have even stooped lower than that and resorted to rehearsal. I have a somewhat different view of the impeachment process from, from many people who are worried about President Trump's abuses, which is I, I think this the impeachment process is working in the way it can in the 21st century. It is not working the way the founders envisioned, because one of the things the founders guessed wrong about was they imagined the Senate as a body above politics. And, uh, and that, that has just turned out not to be the way the Senate has evolved. The Senate is a, a body as partisan as the House of Representatives. Um, it, do, it doesn't do justice. It's not a court. It can't really do a, the advice part of the advice and consent. Um, it is, uh, it's a legislative body riven by parties. Uh, 
But that doesn't mean the make the impeachment process empty. It, what it means is that while the impeachment process does not tend to yield convictions, it, is ne it has never yielded a conviction in American history, um, it can force, it can accelerate the departure of an unfit first term out of office, um, as it did with Andrew Johnson, who wasn't even renominated, uh, as it did with Donald Trump. Um, and it can focus the public mind on issues by elevating uh, an, a, 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 com a complaint by announcing to the world, by um, claiming to the world that this is um, above all normal politics and thrusting the concerns of the House on the schedule of the Senate. If done wrong, it can backfire as impeachment backfired on the Republicans in 1998. But if done right, as it's being done right now, it can mobilize public opinion in an incredible way to the point where now 56% of Americans think this want to see Donald Trump removed. Only about fewer than 30% think that Donald Trump did nothing wrong on January uh, 6th. And the number of Republicans who believe that Donald Trump should be removed from office has risen from one, Mitt Romney, last time, to five on the first day of voting, to six today. So Max, what is your reaction to the impeachment trial so far? Well, I think somebody on, on Twitter, uh, you know, suggested that based on the first day and especially on, uh, on Mr. Castor's presentation that the Trump attorneys were really testing how little they had to say in defense of him in order to still get most of the uh, Senate Republicans to vote to acquit. And they're, you know, basically not even deigning to put up uh, even a semi-coherent defense uh, with, you know, Bruce Castor in particular was just rambling on and on. It was just a struggle to even figure out what the hell he was trying to say uh, amidst all the mentions of Everett Dirksen and all these other uh, completely extraneous matters. Whereas the, the House impeachment managers, I think have been tremendously focused, tremendously effective, tremendously on point. Uh, they've uh, really marshaled their evidence in a way that even Castro had to admit was, was very effective, much apparently to Donald Trump's rage. So, you know, there is no question that the House impeachment managers have proven their case, uh, frankly, just as they proved it about a year ago during the first impeachment trial. There's no substantive on the merits defense of Donald Trump, which is possible, which is why most of the Republicans are reverting to these lame uh, constitutional arguments trying to claim that the impeachment of Trump is, is not constitutional because he's no longer in office. Of course, there's a little tension there amongst their arguments because you know, yesterday, the, the David Schoen in particular was trying to suggest that the House uh, did something wrong by rushing through impeachment at the very same time that they were suggesting that the Senate did something wrong by waiting uh, to try the impeachment case until after Trump had left office. So none of this is really designed to add up to a coherent argument, but it basically just gives Republicans who are voting out of tribal loyalty and out of fear of the Trump base, it really just gives them an excuse to do what they were going to do anyway which is to acquit Donald Trump. But, you know, I agree with, with, with David that it's still a worthwhile exercise because it gets the record, the record out there. It, it makes Donald Trump the first president in our history to be impeached twice. It is moving public opinion. It even moved one Republican senator who actually one more voted that it was constitutional uh, yesterday than had voted it was constitutional before. So I, I think it is worthwhile, even though it is once again revealing that Republican senators don't care about the evidence, don't care about logic, don't care about the facts, don't care about the Constitution, 
don't care about national security, really don't care about anything other than partisan, blind partisan loyalty. So I'm going to ask questions as they come up. I'm going to do, do another round before I start, although the question I'm going to pose now um, is derived from one of the questions we've got from the audience. And if you've got an uh, uh, idea for question, just pop it up there in the Q&A column and I'll, 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 I'll fold it in. Um, David, I, I want to pick up on what Max was just saying. The case seems pretty open and shut here. Um, the case being made by the House impeachment managers is extremely well laid out and substantiated. In, in, in any court, it, it would seem likely that you would actually end up convicting the president. And yet, you know, the Republican Party um, representatives in the Senate, with six exceptions, don't seem to care about that at all. And um, they don't seem to care about the fact that the president of the United States incited an insurrection, a coup attempt, uh, that he uh, launched violence against the institution in which they serve. What's the consequence of having a political party that embraces that kind of behavior discounts the value of the rule of law and democracy um, and, and, and essentially says, you know, they are a party of lawlessness. Well, the, what Trump has always done as much by instinct and personality as by plan is to make Republicans eat dirt. Um, that he doesn't, and he doesn't give, and then he doesn't season the dirt or flavor the dirt. He just gives them the dirt raw. Uh, so, and that's what he did in the, that's what happened on the first day is that um, Republicans, as, as Max said, Republicans wanted to avoid dealing, they wanted to avoid defending the attack on the Capitol. They wanted to avoid agreeing with Donald Trump that the election was stolen from him. Um, you know, maybe, maybe Josh Hawley uh, still wants to defend violent insurrection, but m m most of them don't. Um, what they wanted to do was to uh, take the argument, uh, the president's left office and therefore on prudential grounds or even on legal grounds, he can't be. Uh, he can't be convicted. And there's a problem with that, which is that um, it's happened before in American history that people have been uh, tried by the Senate um, after they left office. And most famously, the case of the Secretary of War in the Grant administration that everyone has now heard about the Belknap case. So what the lawyers for Donald Trump should have done is given the senators something, a little paprika, just something so that when people said, what about Belknap, there would be an answer. It didn't have to be good didn't have to be um, as good as what they were offered on the other side. It just had to be something. And instead, the the Republican, uh, the President Trump's lawyers took the argument, Bell who? Bell what? Never heard of it. We didn't. They didn't even cite it. They didn't even deal with it. So the Republicans are, as you say, going to vote their way, but there are going to be consequences. Look, here's the thing that we are heading toward. Because this is all political, this is about 2022. And in 2022, there can be one of two ballot questions. Ballot question number one, which is the ballot question a Republican would want is, hey, America, um, President Biden has been in office for two years. Do all of you like everything he did? Or do any of you have any disagreements or complaints? Uh, and they don't have to be even like one complaint. You can have contradictory complaints. But if any of you have complaints, we will you know, vote for us to uh, make your complaints. And odds are, after two years of the Biden administration, there will be, there will be complaints. What they want the election not to be about is, hey, everybody, Donald Trump, remember this guy? Let's keep talking about him for two more years because we tested that. Um, that proposition got 
uh, lost them the popular vote in, in 2016. It lost them the House of Representatives in 2018. It lost them the popular vote again in 2020, and it lost them the Senate in 2021. Republicans know. I mean, maybe there are a few of them are they're pros. I mean, a few of them are fanatics, and a few of them are dopes. Uh, but but most of them know this guy's a vote loser. So we need to find some way to put historic distance between us and them. And what is happening at this trial is events. The Democrats are working with the Trump record to make that escape very difficult. And so. Um, uh, what we're going to have is one more round of voting on Donald Trump. One last point on that. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I have these numbers exactly right, so forgive me if I miss it. But I think it was the Cook report that estimated of the 29 closest seats in the country in 2020, House seats, 28 went Republican. Republicans just got, at every close racer, all but one of the 29 closest rates broke for them. That means there are 28 vulnerable Republican seats, at least. Republicans have more vulnerable seats than the Democrats do going into the next cycle. And they should want to focus everything on the future, and Trump is forcing them to focus on the past. I'm going to just start taking some of these questions as they uh, uh, pop up here. Um, uh, I, I see Max has disappeared again briefly. Uh, so let me... Uh, He's an elusive fellow, that Max. Yeah, he is. He's a, a constant... Every, everyone wants him. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he's at an undisclosed virtual location. Um, okay. Let me, let me go to this next one here. Cause it's directed to you here, David. So as I keep coming back to David's great line of if conservatives become convinced they cannot win democratically, they will not abandon conservatism. They will abandon democracy. What do you say to folks as the questioner has interacted with who downplay this or say, yeah, but they're democratic figures who are doing the same or worse. Well, let me just, I need to stress something about that line, which does thank you get quoted a lot. That was not intended as a criticism or an attack on conservatives. It was intended as a warning about the importance of conservatives. That what you need are, you need conservatives to have optimism about what their political chances to remain committed to the democratic system. Because when they get as pessimistic as uh, the Mike Lees and the Josh Hawley's are, they defect from democracy. Um, so, uh, uh, the message of that quote is we need a viable conservatism. And that is both something that conservatives like me should want, or I guess I'm still a conservative, conservatives should want because we want to be competitive. And it's something even that non-conservatives should want because the alternative is not no conservatism. The alternative is anti-democratic conservatism. Um, to those who say there are problems on both sides, um, I would say there are lots of problems on lots of sides. Uh, but if the suggestion is, I, I, this is a, that um, the bad management practices at the New York Times or the bad hiring practices at the University of North Carolina English Department, I'm making that one up, they may be fine, I don't know, are somehow equivalent to the, the attempt to control state power on an anti-majoritarian basis, which has been the Republican project at least since Trump and maybe even a little farther back. I, I don't think those things are equivalents. Um, you know, the, there are a lot of things about the current set, set of ideas in the United States that you can arraign, but our most immediate problem is that there are people who think they are entitled to hold state power despite losing a majority of the votes in a state or federal election. Yeah, in fact, that's the strategy. It's not, a, you know, it's not even, you know, it's it's how they're increasingly building the, the, the system. Well, a corollary to this and a question that's come up in this area um, comes from another fanboy. We had a David fanboy. Now we have a Max fanboy here. It says, I very much admire Max's ability to step back and reconsider 
a lifetime of deeply held views. It seems like that is a reckoning that many people who call themselves lifelong Republicans should do. Any tips for helping them to do it? Well, uh, all it takes is enough anger and outrage to jar you out of the mental universe that you spent a lot of time in. And that was certainly my experience in 2015, 2016, when Donald Trump was running for president. You know, it was what he was saying was just so obviously wrong and so abhorrent. He was so obviously unqualified uh, even to be a dog catcher, much less president of the United States, that it just shocked and astounded me that so many of my former compatriots in the Republican Party supported him. And many of them, after having said that, you know, he was a cancer on conservatism or should not be under the nuclear codes or what have you, and they supported him anyway. And so that made me, you know, reconsider, um, you know, kind of like, you know, as if I'd been, uh, you know, the, the Tom Cruise character in the firm. And all of a sudden I realized that the that the uh, seemingly upright and normal law firm that I was working for was actually, you know, working for the mob and laundering money or what have you. Uh, that was kind of the experience that I had with the Republican Party. And what's shocking, and, and I know that David actually had a, probably a somewhat similar experience much earlier on, and a number of people had experiences like this in the last few years. Uh, but what's shocking to me is, is, is that it's not more widespread, although it certainly happened to a number of people. But I'm actually kind of amazed and appalled, although I shouldn't be, I suppose, by this point, that so much of the Republican conservative establishment, after having spent four years flacking for a guy whose presidency wound up with more than 400,000 dead Americans and the storming of the Capitol, after all of that, I see very little self-reflection, very little self-doubt. Uh, it's full speed ahead, and they've uh, effortless, effortlessly segued uh, from uh, defending Donald Trump to attacking Joe Biden without passing go, just without any moment of of stopping to pause and think like, where are we? What are we doing? What do we believe in? And I think a lot of that obviously has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, they're reacting to, to incentives. Politicians react to the incentive of getting reelected. Uh, you know, uh, Fox hosts and, and, and people who write for websites and so forth, they react to what viewers and readers want or what they think viewers and readers want and the money they can make by, by catering to those desires. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's pretty appalling anyway, because I, you know, I foolishly expected something better. And by this point, I've been completely disabused of any illusions I have about the American conservative movement and the Republican Party. But unfortunately, they, they continue to live down to my, to my worst expectations. Can I try to take a whack at that? Because I was somewhat different. I mean, I admire Max's career very much. And I'd read his book, had the opportunity to read his book in galleys and was very moved by it. But for any of you who ever confront the situation, and frankly, if you live long enough, most of you will, here's the way I think about it that I, I hope is, is helpful to others. When I think back, um, and I'm, I think a decade older than Max, um, when I think back on my involvement in the conservative world. You're very well preserved, by the way. It's, it's, um, it's the, it's the hydroxychloroquine and the bleach I drink every yeah. day. <laughs> um, but uh, when I think back on it, I, here's how I would arrange it. I, there are things I believed about the world and there are things I believed about people. And some of the things I believed about the world turned out to be false. Um, some of the things I believed about the world turned out to be true, but 
just cease to be controversial. Like, um, you know, I strongly believe that if you have to deal with an inflation, what you want is a strict monetary policy and not waging price controls. I don't think I could start a fight over that. There's a time when that was a fight. It's not a fight now. No one will disagree with me about that. You know, when confronting rising energy costs, the right thing to do is to deregulate them, let them rip. They will, they will call forth sufficient new supply. I don't think there was a time when people disagreed with that. Um, so although I have those views still, they're just not salient because the, the other I, we won the argument. So overwhelming that the other side went away. And then there are things um, I believe that I think that were true about the world that were true that remain true and that I will still fight for. And I may have occasion to fight for them. I'm the Biden administration is shaping up to be pretty protectionist. I think for Max and, and for me as well, um, you distinguish the things you believed about the world, things that are you still believe, things that you now regard as false or things that you still think are true, but that aren't controversial with the things you believed about people. And those for me that I've had sort of two sets of shocks. I mean, one of them is there are people who in the Trump years behaved worse than I thought and people who behaved better than I thought. But there are also a big category of people who behaved about the same way I thought, but I didn't think they were as important as they would turn out to be. I mean, I really did believe that the, say, um, the leader of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives was more important than the programming director at Fox and Friends. And that, that, that turned out to be untrue as the, that, that like being the programming director at Fox, that is the most important job in American conservative politics. That person absolutely set the agenda for the Republican party for four years. And all the leader of the conservative, uh, the Republicans of the house of representatives could do was salute. Who is that? I don't know, but um, I think they've rotated. Through, I, I remember seeing the job advertised and thinking, God, whoever has that job, that's it. They're like, like that's bigger than the cabinet. Yeah, certainly was when the president of the United States watched that as his primary, uh, you know, alternative to the briefing most presidents get from the IC. Um, Max, is there any hope for a competitive third party to emerge, a party that, well, in the question here, it says center right and center left, but even just a center right party? I mean, or, you know, do you think the Trumpist GOP is going to be kind of the only alternative on the right for the foreseeable future? Well, my hope for a number of years now has been that the Trumpified Republican Party would be defeated uh, so devastatingly at the polls that it would cause a major rethink of the direction that they, that they have been on. And they should realizing that becoming a cult of personality for a racist clown is maybe not uh, the correct direction for the party of Lincoln. Unfortunately, much as I would have loved to have seen that shellacking occur, it really has not occurred. I mean, you know, you look at what happened in uh, 2020, and of course, Donald Trump was, was handily defeated, but, you know, something like 40,000 votes in three states had shifted, he could have won, or at least thrown it into the House of Representatives where he would have won. Uh, the Democrats actually lost seats in the House after having picked it up, but still lost seats in the House. And... The Senate, you know, is 50-50. So none of that, uh, I think, sends a clear signal to the Republican Party that they need to change course because at the moment they're just petrified of offending Trump and his base because they think that they have a real chance to retake control of the House and Senate in two years' time, and they don't want to mess with that. And that clearly is the dominant motivating factor in both the House and Senate, where you had both the House and Senate Republican leaders, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, admit that Donald Trump was responsible for this violent insurrection. McConnell did it more resoundingly than McCarthy, but they both admitted it. And despite that, 
uh, from all indicators, they are both opposed to impeaching the president who instigated this violent insurrection. And in fact, McCarthy, after voting against the impeachment, went down uh, to pay homage to, to Trump at Mar-a-Lago. So that's where the party is right now. Uh, there's a small number of principled rebels, uh, uh, folks like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And you're talking about, uh, you know, maybe 5% of the, of the House Republican and Senate caucus, of course, led by Mitt Romney in the Senate. So sadly, I just don't think that's enough people uh, to start a new party. And it's not even enough people to really have a serious fight within the Republican Party, because uh, basically, I think the, the collective judgment, there's a sense that right after January 6th, Republicans were shaken by what happened. You know, even Lindsey Graham was saying, oh, I've had enough. You know, I can't go along with Donald Trump anymore. But basically now, uh, with the passage of a few weeks, I think Republicans have basically decided, yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're just going to go along. Uh, it's better to be, uh, you know, an authoritarian, irrational, conspiracy-mongering party uh, as long as we have a chance to uh, pick up a few more seats by, by sticking on that course. Although McConnell's a little bit nervous because they did lose uh, Georgia and Arizona. And so that's not a good sign for Republican prospects in, in purple districts and states. But basically, I, at the moment, I just think they're, uh, it's kind of brain dead and, and morally obtuse and, and kind of on, a auto, on, a, on an autopilot in a continuing Trumpified direction. So, David, just picking up on that for a second, you know, I kind of had one of those Lucy and Charlie Brown in the football moments when, you know, for a moment, it looked like Mitch McConnell was fed up with Trump mm -hmm. and that he was going to um, uh, support the impeachment process. And then it looked like he wasn't. Then this morning, it's, well, he's still got an open mind. But it seemed to me that this impeachment process, which has as a possible outcome the disqualification of Trump, would be the answer to everybody's prayers in the Republican Party. Because if you are you worry that Donald Trump is damaging or um, not sustainable or is going to end up in jail and that's going to damage the party, um, then this is a way to just push him to the sidelines. And if you're a Trumpist and you want to move up, step into the shoes of this the, the, the bully in chief, it would be a good way to push him aside. Well, it's, it's a what happened there. Well, it's a collective action problem that every the incentive for every Republican presidential aspirant is for Donald Trump to be disqualified. But with you voting with Donald Trump and everyone else voting against him, that, that if you're Josh Hawley, if you're Ted Cruz, if you're Tom Cotton, um, you, you want Trump gone, uh, but you want to be yourself branded as a Trump loyalist. And uh, so that, but the problem is not ever, that that uh, that plan only works for so many people. In fact, it only works for doesn't work for anybody because there aren't enough votes. You you need someone else to wield um, the impeachment weapon for you, and and no one will do it. So I think that that's that that's where they are. That said, I do think that this trial finishes Donald Trump as a credible twenty twenty four candidate, um, but not so decisively that say Marco Rubio can relax that he's not going to face some kind of challenge from one of the Trump children uh, for his seat in, in Florida. And, and frankly, um, in a Rubio Ivanka Trump fight, I'm I'm sort of I I, I think there would be a set of karmic justice if um, if Ivanka Trump won. Um, he does he you know. He deserves it, um, and and you might as you might as well get. Do the real we thing. deserve that? 
Do we deserve Senator Ivanka? You know, I think, I mean, it may be one of those things where over the six year term, you don't, but on, on election night, think of the laugh you would have. And, and, <laughs> and you can't value that at zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but to, to your question to Max, I, when I think, I mean, the answer is not starting a third party because uh, first it's impossible under the present rules. And, um, and, Second, it wouldn't look the way the kind of people who talk about the third party talk about it. It wouldn't be a haven for reasonable people. It would be a haven for, you know, it would be, it would be the Joe Rogan party. It would be full of, you know, all the loose weirdos in American life, um, anti-vaxxers and, you know, you know it, it wouldn't be the thing you think it would be. The, the lesson I've taken from both the Trump years and even from the Tea Party years is this country needs to rededicate itself to completing the process of democracy. When Senator Mike Lee tweeted last year that the United States is not a democracy, um, he was right. And it's and not only is he right, but it's becoming more true all the time. But I think most people think it is a democracy, and if it's not, that it should be. So I, I think what would save the Republican Party and save the United States are subconstitutional reforms uh, that are highly achievable. We need um, a new Voting Rights Act. Um, the Supreme Court Turn, um, closed down portions of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. That, that, by the way, that case, although it gets a lot of bad press, it wasn't completely a crazy decision, but it left the door open. To, it, the, the court told Congress how to rewrite the act to make it constitutional. And the court's advice is that was actually pretty good advice. The court said basically, don't, don't have pre-screening according to who was a bad actor in 1965. You know, uh, Hawaii wa was a bad actor in 1965 and Wisconsin is, was a good actor in 65, but today Hawaii is a good actor and Wisconsin was a bad actor. And yet in 2013, the, you know, that it was Hawaii that had to pre-clear and Wisconsin that didn't. So a new Voting Rights Act. Um, I think we need uh, citizen initiatives at each state to create nonpartisan districting, or at least something to put some restraint on the ultra-partisan districting that has prevailed since 2011, especially since the courts are now after 2019, completely out of supervising gerrymandering. Um, and I think if the Republic, to go back to my point about the, that, that, that thing that the reader kindly quoted, you need to take away from Republicans the option of competing anti-democratically. That it has to be on the table. Look, everyone's, you know, every legal citizen is going to vote. It's, the votes are going to weigh as equally as we can. Um, we're going to take away these artificial barriers where the people you don't like find it difficult or have faced longer queues than the people you don't like, just forget it. It's going to be like every other democracy. Every, you know, 70% of the people are gonna vote. They're all gonna find it uh, equally convenient, more or less. They're all going to be weighted equally, more or less. Um, go compete with that. And that is what would change things. Okay, we've got four or five questions here. We've got about 10, 12 minutes left. Uh, very quickly, David, I got a, a question that's a follow-up on, on your last point. So just, just to clarify briefly, said, can David please elaborate on why he thinks a third party would be full of kooks and not those of us slightly center-right and slightly center-left? Well, um, I, I first, the evidence of history, um, the aftermath of Ross Perot's reform party, I think is, a, is a, should be a warning to everybody. Um, uh, second, um, uh, I think the history of successful third parties and there have been successful third parties in the United States, is that they arise when there is a single issue that not, neither of the two parties wants to address for its own reasons. Uh, 
whether it's alcohol prohibition, whether it's anti-slavery, um, whether it's um, more inflationary money, uh, when, whenever any of those issues came up in the past and one of the other, and the two parties together didn't want to deal with it. But then what always happened was one of the two parties appropriated the issue. Uh, the Democrats, you know, the uh, so in the 1870s and 1880s, you had a lot of green black back and inflationist par parties. And in the 1890s, the Democrats said, right, we'll take those votes. Um, and in the same way, they were abolitionists. And basically, the abolitionists and the Whigs merged to form the new Republican Party. Um, I, and I just think it's the nature of psychology, because uh, what you'll find is, if you create a third party, there's a convention. And who is disaffected? Um, who is disaffected enough? And uh, and I think you'll just find it doesn't work that way. And you will also, if you put your energy into starting a third party, you are not putting your energy where it needs to go, which is writing the rules of the road so that all citizens are, can vote in a reasonably convenient way. All citizens face more or less equal barriers to voting and all citizens' votes are counted as evenly as possible. So Max, one of the other questions has to do with the likely outcome here, um, but a subset of it, and that is, what if five Republicans or 10 Republicans vote to convict? What does that do to the Republican party? What do you know, does that establish a rift? Does it establish a parallel track? Does it damage Trump? What, what's the consequence of that, which seems like a likely outcome between five and 10 Republicans? Well, I would guess closer to five than to 10. Um, I'm not sure that it has a huge consequence because then you're still basically saying that over 90% of the Senate Republicans are still uh, in Trump's corner. Uh, it does throw down a marker that there is a substantial disaffected minority within the party. Uh, it does exist and that there is kind of a sanity caucus within the GOP. And you're hearing people like Adam Kinzinger speak out pretty loudly now in a way they did not before while Trump was president. Um, I think it's possible that this could be an early sign of the Republican Party moving a bit away from Trump, and I, which I think will happen anyway, simply because he's no longer the president. He's no longer on Twitter. He is, I think, the, the power of his personality on the Republican Party will, will start to fade a bit, but there's still going to be you know, a battle royale coming up in 2022 when, when his uh, uh, loyalists are going to be trying to run, uh, you know, pro-Trump Republicans to primary out all of the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. And we'll see uh, if that uh, gambit is successful or not. Uh, but clearly, you know, I think there is a desire on, on the part of some in the Republican Party, including Mitch McConnell, to move away from Trump. They don't see being identified with Trump as, as the key to future electoral success, uh, which is you know somebody something that's the only thing that somebody like Mitch McConnell cares about. He just cares about winning seats and confirming judges. And you know that's pretty much his entire universe. So he makes a very uh, cold-blooded calculation of how to win seats. And I think he's decided that you know being strictly identified with Trump is not the way to do it, but he's after flirting with impeaching Trump, now he's clearly backing away. Clearly, he's not going to vote to impeach. And so, uh, you know, I, I think you're going to basically have a Republican Party leadership that will not repudiate Trump, but will try to pretend that Trump doesn't exist. And I think the issue will be 
to what extent will Trump continue to animate and excite the Republican base? Is he, st- is he going to have the energy to go around the country doing rallies? Is he going to be appearing on Fox every day? Or is he going to be golfing every day? And I think the answers to those questions are not yet clear. Just have a couple questions left, only about nine minutes. So uh, keep that in mind. <clears throat> One picks up on something you were talking about, David, which has to do with the role of Fox and the media in not just you know, convening the audience on the right, but actually setting the agenda on the right. How do you think that's likely to change? Do you see moves afoot to try to change that? Um, and you know, I was thinking about it just the other day. Rupert Murdoch, who's at the center of all this, is not gonna be with us forever. Um, and his children don't share his view. Um, and I'm not just basing this on my close watch of succession on HBO. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, that, it, that you know, portends a big shift yeah. potentially in all of this. I want to make clear, I, I think for the future of American po- politics, Facebook is a much bigger problem than, than Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, Fox is to some degree a self-repudiating. Uh, problem because look here's the problem with with Fox uh, so there you are um, you know it's not like there are unbigoted people in their 50s but you're a 55 year old and you say I, I want to be filled with rage and hate and Fox says okay we have uh, I'm now going to forget the times we have Laura at eight and we have Tucker at nine and we have Hannity at ten so no no I, I want to be filled with rage and hate at 4:30. Um, that's the time. That's my time to be filled with rage and hate. And like Netflix meets me and DoorDash meets me. What do you mean? I have to come to you for, to have my rage and hate on your timetable. So that Fox's core problem is it's a television station that broadcasts at fixed hours. And their whole business model is based on you get your rage and hate when we choose to serve it. And that just isn't modern America. People want rage and hate on on demand, on demand, on demand, rage and hate. And, and, And that's what Facebook offers. Also, Facebook is a much bigger platform and Facebook also has the validating because it comes from people you yourself have decided to trust. Um, and the Facebook problem is really hard. Uh, I think the first step is an antitrust action to sever Facebook and Instagram to create more competitive platforms. Uh, but it, uh, Facebook is a global entity and it's really powerful and politicians are really scared of it. Max, today we found out that the uh, uh, authorities in Fulton County, Georgia, um, are investigating Trump's call to Secretary of State uh, Raffensperger there and uh, looking at a, you know potential criminal charges. Uh, we know that there are potential criminal charges against Trump in New York State, New York City. Um, who knows what the Department of Justice may have in store uh, or other states. Would a conviction mark the end of of Trump and Trumpism? Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, it could actually wind up uh, agitating his base even more. I mean, it's not unheard of. You have like Mayor Curley in Boston winning re-election from jail. Uh, you know, you could you could see, you know, especially if Trump is prosecuted by the Biden Justice Department, that could feed his narrative of persecution. They hate us. They're out to eradicate us, you know, uh, we need to fight back. They're going to—they're trying to destroy me. They're trying to destroy you, et cetera. So that could actually, you know, feed into his narrative because uh, whatever he is accused of or even convicted of, 
obviously his base will not believe it for a minute. They will think that, you know, this is a retribution from the cabal of child satanic worshiping child molesters that Trump has been fighting, right? I mean, uh, their beliefs defy uh, reason or logic or fact. Um, uh, it, it's it's like a religious cult. So, you know, it's like saying, can you prove that, you know, some, uh, that, uh, that some religious leader did not uh, perform the miracles ascribed to him? Well, maybe you can, but it's not going to matter to most of the believers because by definition, they're believers, right? It's not based on, on logic or reason. And that's, that's pretty much the same with, uh, with Trump's cult. So I don't think that, that legal action is going to deter his, his followers. Uh, I think, you know, the only Trump's downfall might actually be his lethargy if, in fact, he proves uh, as unenergetic un as I suspect he might. I mean, if he actually decides he just wants to, you know, play golf and, you know, make money through some kind of scam, instead of actually, you know, doing rallies and, and, you know, trying to get his voice out there, even though he's been silenced on, on Twitter, he can fade out of sight and they can focus on, on new objects of, of passion and hatred. Uh, but I'm skeptical that any, any outside attack on Trump, no matter how warranted, will change the views of, of his loyal followers, which are probably about 70% or so of the Republican base at this point. Okay. A um, couple of questions that I see here we've already, we, we already addressed. Um, this one's a little bit offbeat, but, but David, let's, let's address it and see where it leads. It says here, diplomats from international partners are rightly reluctant to get involved in the domestic, in domestic U.S. politics, but would privately making clear their concerns over the democratic implications of current Republican behavior or distancing themselves have any impact on that behavior? I, you know, I guess the question arises, you know, the United States on a regular basis goes around the world. And when countries that we're involved with drift away from democracy, we make that an issue. Mm -hmm. What about other countries making that an issue here? I, I can't imagine such a thing happening. I really, I really can't. And I don't think anyone's going to, I think uh, our partners are just going to be so grateful to have uh, semi-normal American government again. But there are two international things that I think really are going to be loom very large over the next little while. One is um, when I went to work in the Bush administration, and that was only 20 years ago, the US economy was eight times the size of the Chinese economy by most reckonings. And at the beginning of the Obama administration, the US economy was still three times the size of the Chinese economy. And, and today the two countries are near peers. And by the end of the decade, um, uh, they will be peers. And the United States has never faced um, a peer a, a peer adversary, unless you count the British Empire as an adversary, which it really was not exactly. Um, and so uh, it's going to be a, a very, the United States is gonna to have to do foreign policy in a way, certainly unlike anything seen since the end of the Cold War and really unlike anything um, in the post-World War One, since America's rise to great power status. And the second thing I think is, I, I think the, tw the 20s are going to be the decade in which um, just as COVID is done, climate becomes impossible not to think about all the blinking time. Um, and, uh, you know, that that the Trump people kept trying to make of China um, a Soviet-style adversary. China has fewer nuclear weapons than Israel does probably. 
And the Chinese just don't do project power that way. On the other hand, they're the largest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet. Um, that is a gigantic problem. And so we're going to have to build a new kind of foreign policy to meet new kinds of challenges. Good point. Um, all right, one more minute for each of you. Um, to give me, Max, your outlook for the remainder of this impeachment trial and any lasting consequences it may have. Well, I mean, the outlook is pretty easy to predict that the impeachment managers will continue to make an ironclad case. Uh, the Trump defense attorneys will continue to make a horrible, unconvincing, incoherent case. And all but probably five or six Senate Republicans will then vote to acquit. And, you know, next week, the, the Senate will move on to the uh, economic stimulus package and other matters. Um, you know, very hard to, to predict what the lasting impact will be. I hope that the lasting impact will be that it will prevent Trump from making a comeback in four years' time and that it will dent some of his support and, and cause the Republican Party to uh, be more wary of being associated with him. But I'm not 100% convinced that any of those things are actually going to happen. I hope that they will. I think there's a decent chance that they will. But you know, Trump has defied the odds so many times, including just by winning the presidency in the first place, that I would hesitate to dismiss him or his influence even after two impeachments. David, here's your chance to break r radically with Max. If you say that seven or eight Republicans will support this, that's a 30 or 40 yeah. percent difference. <laughs> um, um, from from his projection, what what's your outlook? No, I I, I think it's probably as Max is right. It's probably on the low end. Um, I think uh, Romney, Murkowski, Collins uh, vote vote to con convict. Um, I think Ca Cassidy. I think he just his professionalism was offended by having his time wasted by these morons, um, and he cast a protest vote against being a, a moron. Um, and I imagine he rallies. He is from Louisiana. Uh, there may be a surprise or two. I think Sass ultimately votes to acquit, not to convict. Um, so I think it's not many. Never but, missing a chance to disappoint. Yeah, I think he's, you know, well, uh, let's bracket that. Where, where I think this is going, I think what the, the what is happening here is, let's, even if, there, if it's as few as three or four, that is the biggest same party conviction vote in American history. Um, and uh, it is a devastating repudiation. And while it doesn't have in, in itself immediate legal consequences, is it is a signal to every, if you're, if you are um, the legal authorities in New York state and you're thinking, do we dare bring tax and bank fraud charges against Donald Trump or will this blow up the country? If you're weighing that same, uh, that same question in New Jersey, um, you know, there it's casino fraud. Um, if, if you're, uh, you know, um, thinking in Florida, do we begin to apply land use rules at Mar-a-Lago? And do we apply the zoning laws to Mar-a-Lago? And by the way, um, uh, that strange, I, I won't go, I know we're out of time, but in 2005, Donald Trump filed a very peculiar insurance report on a hurricane that he got $17 million for and it did no visible damage. Now the statute of limitations has expired on that. But if just hypothetically, I'm not accusing of this because we're conscious of libel laws, but if hypothetically you had the habit of bribing insurance inspectors to give you favorable damage reports so that you can, you probably didn't do that trick only once in your life. Um, and uh, there's just, there's just, I mean, there's just a lot of these things. And now every prosecutor's got the green light. You know what? Not even his own party will, not even his own party will unanimously defend him. So if you've got a good case, 
go ahead. Guys, once again, a great conversation. I always like talking to both of you, learn a lot, and also um, admire both of you for your 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 candor and the fact that um, knowing you both for many, many years, everything that you say is founded in principle. Um, that's rare and appreciated and necessary in a time like this. Hopefully you'll join us again sometime soon. Hopefully those who joined us in our webinar audience will have found it of some value to be able to post questions like this and join us. If you didn't join us in the webinar audience, we do this every week on Wednesdays and uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com, find out who we've got, join us, sign up, pose questions, help to shape the discussion. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that uh, for a long, long time to come because there's a lot of questions to come. And of course, we've got the rest of our programming. So go to the DSR network for that. And if you like, go to dsrnetwork.com, click on membership and provide us with a little bit of support. We'd be grateful. In the meantime, thank you very much, David. Thank, thank you. you very much, Max. Thank you everybody for listening and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.